Well, alright. I said we're gonna have a good day. Hey. Welcome to Rise with Emily and Audra. I'm Dr. Emily McRae. And I am Dr. Audra Rankin. We are educators, healthcare providers, and mothers who view the world as an unlimited learning opportunity. RISE is a podcast that highlights how we learn from the experiences and stories of others to create new perspectives that improve our own work. Listen with us, think with us, learn with us. And along the way, be inspired to rise up above your day-to-day. All right, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. Knock us down a thousand times in the mornings we will rise. This really shouldn't come as a surprise. Knock us down a thousand times in the mornings we will rise. Okay, shouldn't come as a surprise. Cause every morning we will rise. Welcome to Rise with Emily and Audra. Today we have Dr. Craig Green, who is the VP for Business Operations at Joe Gibbs Racing, uh, based in Huntersville, uh, North Carolina. And he is a pediatric cardiologist by training, but has transitioned to a role in, in NASCAR and specifically with Joe Gibbs Racing. And so we're thrilled to have him with us today to learn a little bit more about the NASCAR organization and his team and how that can inform um, how we deliver healthcare. And, and health outcomes. So, um, Dr. Green, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're doing at Joe Gibbs? Sure. Thanks for having me. It's just a pleasure to be here and, and to talk about my experiences and my view of healthcare and, and business. And so, uh, you know, right now I'm executive vice president of Joe Gibbs Racing on the business operation side. So, for you guys that may not know what that is, Joe Gibbs Racing is one of the elite NASCAR teams. We field seven race cars. We field three race cars in the Xfinity Series, which is like one step down. And then we have four cars in the Cup Series. We call it NASCAR Cup Series. And those cars are the number 11 FedEx car driven by Denny Hamlin and the number 18 M&M's car driven by Kyle Busch, the number 19 car which is sponsored by Bass Pro Shop and driven by Martin Truex Jr. And the number 20 car, which is DeWalt and is driven by Christopher Bell. And just bragging a little bit about how Coach and the guys have developed this team. It's been, this is the 31st year. Over the past, I guess it's been since 2008 uh, when we were with Toyota, we've been the winningest team in NASCAR. And so we're real proud of that. And that's in in the majority of categories. And so the goal here is to win races and we strive for excellence. And what I do is there's two sides to a NASCAR team. We have about 400, a little over 450 employees. And we have two sides to the program. We have what we call the administrative side, which is where we are responsible for getting sponsorship and We're responsible for servicing the sponsors in the program, communications. We have a social digital media entire team, and we do some uh, business-to-business opportunities, and we do a PR. And then on the other side is the competition side. Those are the guys and the engineers and all the rest of the team that build the race cars, and they also go to the track and compete. So that's the competition side. And we all work together for the common goal of winning as many races as we can. And people don't know this. They think these teams are like uh, that movie Days of Thunder where you build them in a garage. But 
But actually, we have over 65 PhD guys and engineers in the building. We have two or three that have doctorate degrees, one from Stanford and one from Duke. And these guys are have their degrees in aerodynamics, uh, fluid dynamics, mechanical engineering. So as much as I, you know, I practiced medicine for 27 years in a very small subspecialty. But I have to tell you, when we get together, this is as good a group of professionals as I've ever worked with. There's a lot of similarities that I have found in a race team, believe it or not, and in my medical teams that I participated in or led. And there's a lot of similarities, but it's been fun. I mean, my favorite time is Sunday when we go race the car. Like I was in Phoenix this past Sunday. We had a, unfortunately, probably the worst weekend we've had since I've been here in terms of execution and competition. And Monday, we had a very intense meeting about how we get better. So there's a lot of similarities between the two. I'm just amazed at the organizational structure of these racing teams, because I think, you know, from an outsider looking in, we we know the drivers, we know the pit crew, that's what we see on TV. And there's just this very complex system of a lot of different perspectives and expertise that goes Mm -hmm. into, you know, making what we see on a Sunday afternoon happen. And so I think it's, it's really interesting to learn about all those different components, whether it's operations or technology or engineering or whatever it may be. One of the things that I am curious about as well is, you know, there are all these different parts to the system, but then within the racing leg, there seem to be like different tiers of racing. So there's drivers who are maybe a little bit younger, who are racing Mm -hmm. on a different circuit than the drivers that we see, you know, in the Indy 500 or whatever it may be. But how as an organization do you identify these different types of drivers and then mentor them so that they kind of rise through the ranks because I, I think you know it's similar to what we see in nursing or medicine where you know you have these brand new healthcare mm-hmm. providers and you want to foster them and mentor them and you know have them lead teams one day and get to you know a higher level. So I'm curious as to how you all do that at Joe Gibbs. You know, we had this conversation yesterday, and the reason is three of our four cup drivers are, let's just say older, older means, you know, late 30s, early 40s in this career. And they are three first, probably first uh, ballot Hall of Famers whenever they retire. And so we're starting to have discussions about the succession of drivers over the next several years. And it's very interesting. There are a lot of similarities between staffing your health team, wherever it is, whether it's nursing or physicians, and staffing your race team. So for example, the number one thing that you need is a great organization that can provide a car that can go fast. And then you pair that with a talented driver who can take the the car and make it reach its potential. That's how you win. If you have a great car and a great team that prepares a very fast car, but the driver cannot make the car reach its potential, you're not going to win. Or if you have a great driver, the best driver in the garage, and he gets put in a car that's not great, he's not going to win either. And I think that if you look at all the teams I've been on in healthcare, so for example, in pediatric cardiology, when I came out in 92, I was trained to do 
heart catheterizations in children. And it's intense and it's a team. And I used to always say, you're only as good as your weakest link on your team. And that can be the physician who's who's in charge, or it can be my assistant who hands me the wrong catheter at the wrong time. I mean, that's as good as you are. So when you build out a team, you try to have all the components and then you try to empower everybody to reach the potential of the team. And when you do that, I think you have success. So going back to the drivers, identifying talent and talent can be the actual skill of driving a race car, but you have to look at, we look here at character. We look at work ethic. We look to see if the driver has the capability to represent our sponsors who are a lifeblood in situations. And you identify those people. And then you, what you try to do is you go try to get them on your team at some level. And a lot of times we will bring young drivers up. So for example, in NASCAR, there's the ARCA series, which is the lowest. Then you have the truck series. Then you have the Xfinity series. And then you have the cup series. And our, our number one partner, Toyota, actually has a lot of resources in driver development that goes down to ages lower than 15. And there's a whole program to develop drivers at the grassroots level. They even have a performance center here in town where the drivers participate in, in learning how to eat the correct diet, how to exercise, how to go about the business of being a driver. And we start that at a very young age. Now, probably one of the most talented, if not the most talented young drivers in all of NASCAR at all levels is Coy Gibbs' son, Ty Gibbs. That's coach's grandson. Ty is extremely talented, and he's 19, and he's just starting his first full season in Xfinity. He came up through uh, late models and ARCA, and last year ran a partial schedule in the Xfinity series and ended up winning Rookie of the Year in several races. So he's, he's very talented. So we're very excited that one of our options, our number one option for driver development, is Coach's grandson and Coy's son. And he's a great kid, and we see a bright future for him. So identifying talent is a skill in itself. But when I look at how successful Coach has been, he's the only person I know that's in two major sport Hall of Fames, the NFL Hall of Fame and NASCAR. And at every level, from winning Super Bowls to winning NASCAR championships, he's been very successful. And Joe's motto is you win with people. He doesn't say you win with a car. He says you win with people. And what he means by that, I've watched him. He has a unique way to take talented people and put them together in a way that the team, he optimizes the team's performance. And to me, that is a skill. It's a talent. Coach has it. And I think a lot of people could learn from how team building occurs in sports because it does apply to our medical teams. You guys know this. I had a cath team, then moved on to Echo, and then, you know, in the ICU. The changes that we made when I started my career in a post-op ICU situation to the changes, I mean, to where we were when I left a few years ago is dramatic. 
So, for example, a baby that has open heart surgery is coming up to the ICU. Not only do now we have pediatric cardiac intensivists, doctors trained that way, we have pediatric cardiac intensive trained nursing. And there's a hierarchy and, and the baby arrives and there is a didactic way that you go about taking a baby fresh from the operating room and going through every aspect of the care as a team. It used to be the baby would come up and there would be a couple of nurses and a couple of us doctors and we'd start working. Now it's it's so defined and, and that's progress, but that only happens because we switch to a team-oriented approach. So identifying talent at every level, recruiting the talent, but more importantly, positioning that talent in the team situation that maximizes performance is what we strive to do here. Now we judge it every week as whether we win a race or not. In the medical field, it's every day whether we have a successful procedure, whether we have maximized a patient's chances of recovering or having a good outcome. So I'm kind of rambling, but I I do think that there's a lot of synergy and a lot of uh, comparisons in what I do now and what I did for 27 years. Craig, I could not agree with you more. And I I don't know about you, Audra, but I've learned so much (laughs) in the past, even just 10 minutes that I've, anyways, very intriguing. And I, and I agree there is synergy between these worlds. And this is just really interesting to learn about and to discuss. I don't, Craig, I work in a pediatric intensive care unit. I'm a nurse practitioner and, and we've actually grown through, you know, recently what you're just talking about having a separated cardiac ICU and a medical PICU and and the incredible amount of work and teamwork that has gone into that is mm-hmm. um, is really impressive. I am just intrigued. I know that you know, it sounds, I know that you know in the medical world and in the racing world, it sounds like communication and highly effective teams mm-hmm. are imperative. And that's what I'm hearing you say uh, in describing all of this. I would be willing to bet that teamwork and communication also impacts safety in the organization and being able to communicate well impacts outcomes, as you mentioned in racing, but also outpatient outcomes in a medical team. And so I was curious if you could speak a little bit to, in the racing world, how that highly effective team impacts safety outcomes. Yeah, obviously, we're dealing with cars that are going at 200 miles an hour on some tracks. And years ago, there was an issue. So unfortunately, in our field, and I and I have seen it in medicine, it takes a tragedy to move the needle sometimes. So if you guys, if you know anything about NASCAR, one of the heroes of our sport was a guy named Dale Earnhardt. And Dale Earnhardt Sr. died at Daytona. I think it was 2001, and a car wreck in the car. And he was such a big name that everyone started talking about safety. And from that came the Hans device that that straps the neck in to, to prevent the extension injuries from deceleration, and it saved lives. From that came better uh, seats. From that came sulfur berries. I don't know whether you know it, but now instead of concrete walls, there's foam walls. There's a concrete wall, then there's something called the safer barrier. And it's basically an energy absorbing wall. So when you hit it, the G's are disseminated. And since that time, deaths have virtually gone away at, at the cup level. And it took a tragedy of one of our superstars to get people to really focus on it. 
that's human nature, I think. And so now everything that NASCAR does, we have a new car this year. It's a totally new car that NASCAR just changed all the rules. But the number one thing in developing the car and the number one concern we had in the drivers is, is it as safe as the other car? And safety is a paramount. So to go back to communication, communication, we, we actually brought in an expert, an outside consultant about three years ago to go through the race shop and talk to people. And probably about the only thing that came out that was interesting that we had to address is there was just a communication issue at several levels. And I think if you do that same assessment on a team in medicine, I think that's the number one thing we fight every day is communicating at the bedside, communicating for us would be communicating at the racetrack properly. And that involves chain of command. It involves people being able to speak freely without fear of repercussions at no matter what level. Every part of a team should be able to express themselves about their concern. So open, free communication done within a hierarchy of a system that, you know, so there's a chain of command. And then that is as important as anything about, about success. In terms of safety, we talk about safety. I wish I could take you down and show you the cars getting ready for Atlanta and how the process that is that we go through within the confines of the rules of NASCAR to make these cars as safe as possible. Now, one other thing I'd like to discuss is we do all this stuff, but there has to be accountability and a way to assess whether you were successful. So one of the similarities between medicine and NASCAR is on Monday at two o'clock, all of our drivers, all of our crew chiefs, a handful of engineers, and a handful of us uh, administrators have a competition meeting. And it's where we all go in a room and the doors are shut. And for an hour and a half, we discuss what happened the day before. And we go through, you know, if someone had a an incident on the track, what happened? How could it be better? Were the cars prepared correctly? Was the setup correct? Were the engines in, you know, good? And it's an open discussion about the performance that we had the day before. Where did we fail and where did we do well? And we do that every Monday. It reminds me of our morbidity and mortality conferences that we would have about every month. And I look back and I, I really do, if I had a, if I could Go back in time, knowing what I know now, I think those are as important a conference as you can have in medicine and probably should occur weekly. And I think they should occur in smaller groups. We had these big groups, you know, where it was about major outcomes. Uh, it was because it involved how surgery. But I think it could be done at a smaller level. I think that like uh, your group in the ICU could get together once a week as a small team and go, okay. Let's talk about a bad outcome or, or something and just do it internally. I think accountability in the sense of trying to understand where you're good and where you're not is the way you get better. Well, and it, it sounds like in your small groups, the benefit of that is that you've developed this psychological safety where 
You can be honest and say, you know, whatever you're thinking without fear of repercussions. And I think that's what struck me about, you know, kind of the setup that you described is oftentimes we don't give ourselves that luxury of developing psychological safety with each other and being able to really say what we think. And also another thing that struck me about what you said is this concept of hierarchy. And I think so often with leadership styles, particularly now we think about leadership styles that are maybe a little bit more vague where you don't have this hierarchy where there's an innovative approach where everybody can say different things and it just reminded me for what you do and when you're in an operating room and you know certain situations that hierarchy is really vital to safety and outcomes in a way that you know you you can't even imagine whereas in other environments you know having like you said, you know, this ability to kind of stand around and sit and everybody talk and there's not really a hierarchy, but everybody adds value and everybody has space to share is really important. And so it just, it's interesting how different leadership styles can bubble up within the same organization, just depending on, you know, what you're, you're doing. So you did such a, well, I I think that's important in so many ways. So I think it was Machiavelli that said the best form of leadership or governance is a benevolent dictator. Unfortunately, those two rarely go together. But I think what he was talking about is what I see here with Coach. Joe is by far the leader of the race team. He's involved. He works more than any of us. He's here. He's engaged with everything. But like at our competition meeting, Joe is there, but he allows everyone to speak freely. He encourages it because he realizes that that's the way to get better. And I totally agree with that approach. And, you know, our drivers are colorful. And if they've had a bad day, they're competitors. The room can get a little ugly at times in our (laughs) setting. And ugly meaning, you know, a little bit of foul language here and there and, and whatnot. But it gets out. It gets out in an environment that is structured and we we discuss it. And we come to conclusions and then we go to the next race, we reset. And I think a great leader, first of all, wants to hear feedback, needs to hear feedback and allows his team to give honest feedback in a way that is non-threatening. And I think that's what builds consensus and, and builds trust. And a leader is ineffective without trust. And I don't care what it is. If you're a leader of a two person team, you and two other people the same principles apply. And so I think you're right. I think, and I do agree that there has to be a leader at some point. There has to be a decision maker. So on Sunday, when the race is occurring and there are things happening at 200 miles an hour and pit stops that are occurring, you're changing four tires and putting a whole bunch of gas in a car in 13 seconds, making decisions about setup. The leader at that time is the crew chief, bar none. He is the leader. Now, during the week, the car chief and all the other people under him can come in and talk and they can have opinions and decisions. But at crunch time, you got to have that leader in the cath lab. You know, the physician that's running the cath is the leader and can't be wishy-washy in the ICU, the PA, the whoever is the, the leader. When things are going bad, you have to have someone that is making the decisions. And so. There are times where you can get consensus and there's times where you don't have the luxury to get consensus. But if you're effective, you know your team, you know what position of everything, 
and you, you can make decisions with confidence. So leadership is essential. Good leadership. Wishy-washy leadership will never get you anywhere. Craig, I, in listening to you talk, just so many things of what you've said have resonated with me. Uh, you know, it's important to have in any team to have the good communication, the accountability. Something I'm very passionate about is interprofessional or multi-professional functioning as teams where everyone does contribute to the forward success. And we highly value that. We do in intensive care have morbidity and mortality conferences where we can, in a safe place, learn Mm -hmm. and grow collectively as a team across all professions. And I think it sounds very similar to what you're describing in, in racing. I was curious if we could switch gears a little bit. Something I wanted to ask about was next gen. What does this mean? (laughs) And how does it highlight advances in technology? So the process of going to the next gen car was long and arduous because what you're doing is you're taking things that we have done for years and we call it intellectual property. So for example, Joe has had the race team for 30 plus years. And during that time, we have developed a way that we build a race car and it's got all of our tricks and all of our secrets and all of our engineering in it because we actually built in the in here, we actually manufactured about 85 to 90% of the parts on the car. We built them. We actually have CNC machines. So the new car, and it, and it gets very expensive. So NASCAR comes in and goes, We want to change to a more modern car with different rims, single lug nuts, sequential shifter versus an eight shifter, a different look. So it's it's more relevant. It's more forward facing to the modern world. And we also want to cut cost because it's getting too expensive. So we're going to build all the parts and you buy them and then you put the car together. So as you can as you can see, that decreased the areas that we can compete in and that we had control of. And so there was a lot of controversy about, is that a good way to go? But NASCAR voted on it. They are the sanctioning body that controls the rules. And so we all had to adjust. So coming out of that, everyone is playing by a different set of rules, but is it kind of hit a reset button. So all the new teams are dealing with the same problems that we're dealing with. We're all learning together. So if you notice at the beginning of this year, there's a lot of different drivers than you normally see running up front or winning races. What we anticipate is that as we learn more, we have a lot of resources. There's like Mr. Hendrick, Mr. Penske, Coach. There's some bigger teams that have a lot of resources that as we're learning, our learning curve may be steeper and we may actually be able to learn some things faster. And over time, maybe our performance uh, starts to separate. We will see. So the new car was designed and repositioned to be more forward-facing, more modern, as safe, and to cut cost. So we'll see if it works out. That's so interesting. And like Emily, there are so many things that you're saying that I... I'm learning from, and I want to ask all these different questions about NASCAR and the team. And so I want to switch gears a little bit more from where Emily just switched and go from, you know, thinking about the Joe Gibbs racing team and communications and safety and technology to really thinking about the fan base of, of NASCAR. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think I, 
I told you and when we talked, you know, earlier, I, I grew up in North Carolina and, and NASCAR is a huge piece of North Carolinians culture. But what I find so interesting from my memories of, of childhood in NASCAR is that it has I don't think I'm seeing out of turn. You've been historically a, a very like white male southern dominated sport, you know, when and your sponsors, you know, for NASCAR in general are, are kind of reflective of that fan base. But as a, a national organization now that, you know, is maybe a little bit more thoughtful about how to bring in an audience that's reflective of the country, not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, this one fan base. How are you all doing that? And I, I've read about in the New York Times and, you know, major publications about initiatives, um, whether it be Drive to Diversity or Diversity Internship mm-hmm. Programs. But can you tell me a little bit about the dialogue around that or how you all are addressing that as an initiative? Because I think that that is also a conversation that is universal across a lot of organizations, not necessarily NASCAR, but, you know, in healthcare and business and, and lots of different things. So I'm curious as to what you all have learned, because you maybe have had, you know, more of a drastic shift than other organizations in trying to diversify um, a little bit. I appreciate that and the opportunity to talk about it. I also grew up with NASCAR with my dad, and historically, NASCAR was a southeastern sport, and it really catered to a certain crowd. Probably starting in the late 90s and and working up to the present, there's been a huge shift in our fan base and what we're trying to do. We are all concerned about diversity and inclusion programs at every level, and even here at Joe Gibbs Racing, We started a diversity and inclusion committee several years ago, and the goal of that is to what we're wanting to do within Joe Gibbs Racing, and it's reflective of efforts within NASCAR, is to create opportunities for everyone. Like we have now a female welder that was on Fox and Friends in the morning. That would not have happened years ago, and she's fantastic. We are at every level, we're trying to find, encourage, develop minorities, females in the sport at all levels. We're trying to, as a group, check ourselves about what are our goals. And NASCAR has a very well-developed diversity program that we all work together to try to find talent. And I'm really proud of the progress that's been made over the past 10 years, but specifically over the past couple of years. So for example, You may not know this, but Joe started a driver diversity program with Reggie White years ago. And people don't know that. And that diversity program, we've put Eric Amarola through that program, who's our friend. We've put Bubba Wallace came through that program years ago, and now he's back in a Toyota. We've had Daniel Suarez, who won a a championship in Xfinity. He's Mexican-American. He came through the program. And so he's always promoted diversity. And The issue that comes up is that you got to take these initiatives and get to the grassroots. So it has to be that we have to make it so that there's a diverse group of young kids going into go-karts and now they're going into late models so that as they move up, it takes years, there's more to choose from. I'm talking about drivers. The quickest and easiest place that we have found to be as inclusive as possible is on our pit crews. And we have diversified the most rapidly in that area, and it's been great. But as far as NASCAR fans, 
if you get the demographics of the NASCAR fan base now, it's very different than in the 1990s. Average, average household income and education are a lot higher than you would imagine. The number of female fans is approaching 40%. The number of Hispanic and minority fans is increasing exponentially. And now we have Michael Jordan joined with our driver, Denny Hamlin, to form 2311. And we're in an alliance with them and work closely with them through our partner, Toyota. And you have Bubba Wallace driving. You've got leadership over there that's very diverse. And they're just great partners. What everyone is looking for and wants to happen, there are two big goals. One, Danica Patrick, there's been some pioneers on the female driver side. Danica's the most recent, is everyone wants to find, as my buddy says, the car does not know who's driving. It doesn't know. It doesn't know if it's female, male, white, black. It just doesn't know. So our sport should be the, the easiest to compete because it, it just doesn't know. And we are working, I know uh, Coy Gibbs is really involved about trying to find way down low female drivers, girl drivers that are in and to try to support them at age 10 and 11, because that's where it starts. And so there's a big push to develop diversity down in the grassroots level. And that's where it has to start. I think that's so valuable and something we can all all learn from. I mean, even in in nursing, yes. thinking about mentoring nurses when they're in elementary school and find, you know right. exposing them to that role that's so much more valuable than waiting until they're you know a, an admitted freshman in college and trying to recruit them. Then, so I think that's something we can all learn from. Unfortunately, when I went to med school in the eighties, you know, out of one hundred and sixty eight people, I think minority wise, we had 12 minority, maybe 15. And I just remember thinking that's, you know, not good. I think it's much, much better now. And I think there's been progress made in medicine and I've, I've seen it. I think people just have no idea what a priority it is for NASCAR and for Joe Gibbs racing and most of the race teams I know. We need to be relevant in every aspect of what we do. And we need to be reflective of what is expected of us and it's the right thing to do, period. This is, continues to be great conversation. I, know I, I just continue to learn more and more. Something that I'm curious about, you know, when I watch NASCAR or things that I notice about NASCAR, I see lots of uniforms and cars that have lots of ads <laughs> all across them. And you've mentioned some Toyota, FedEx, I think you said DeWalt, Eminem. <laughs> it list goes on and on. As an organization deciding who to partner with, how do you balance revenue and values? And does diversity play into that? It seems like it does based on what you were just saying in reaching your audience. We live off our sponsorship dollars. Uh, the way the model is now, about 80% of our revenue comes from sponsorship. And so it used to be that you would go to a company and they just wanted, it was more of a branding or they just wanted to, to brand on the car and they would go to a race, and it would be on television, and that was enough. They would bring a few people. That has totally changed. They want that, but what they also want is they have key performance index measurements that they're looking for. It can be they need to have this much social digital media exposure through our driver, through our race team, or through the sponsorship on the car 
for some, it's a business to business that we have a one of our senior vice presidents, a friend of mine, Dean Noble, that's all he does. So for example, I'll give you an example. FedEx came to us years ago and they were number three, right? Number three in terms of delivering packages in mid-America. And so they asked us to help them with exposure. Well, that's how it started. They ended up being number one after a few years. We moved the needle for them in terms of brand awareness. But then what we started doing is Dean and Joe started going to our partners and saying, are you, you know, who are you shipping all your stuff with? Whether it was Mars, these are billion dollar companies. And we moved shipping from competitors over to FedEx. Well, FedEx to this day attributes about $300 million of shipping per year to the program here. So they're getting value that way. Then some people will want to have value in selling more product. Mars and M&Ms is they want to sell more candy and they use our program to do that. So our side has become very, very sophisticated. And you use racing as a platform, but we have metrics that we have to reach. And so when we go into a sponsor, the first thing we do is we tell them about us and they talk about what they want to do. And then we define what are you trying to get out of the program? What are you trying to get out of it? Once we define it, then we can show them how we can meet those uh, metrics. And then we internally decide how much it costs and we come to a financial arrangement with the company and that's how it works. And I mean, these are huge brands we deal with. What I love about it is on Sunday, you know, um, like the Mars family, we're talking to Victoria and Pam Mars. They're the family. They come to the racetrack. Uh, Bass Pro Shops, uh, Johnny Morris was there in Phoenix. You know, he started Bass Pro Shops. FedEx, we have the highest levels. I mean, it's fun to be around founders of these iconic companies and families. And it's all about, it goes back to what Joe talks about. It's all about people and relationships. And it's a relationship business. NASCAR, there's a TV deal that's coming up. And so there's an opportunity for us to change the model a little bit. And there's a little bit of discussion going on. It's going to be interesting to see where we land in a couple of years. But there's a, you know, it's a major sport with a lot of money that flows through it. But we have to perform on the track. You have to win. But not only that, we have to perform with each sponsor about what they're trying to do with the money they're spending with us. And everyone's different. And so we build out programs depending on what the sponsor wants. I love that. And as you're talking, I mean, this is just the academic and nerd and me. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking about value-based care and yeah. medicine all week long, just in every single meeting has come up. And as you're talking, I, you know, think of this like value-based sponsorship model. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly the same thing. And so I can't wait to debrief you, that um, with Emily you know, Audra, in a little while. Audra, I tell you, I tell you, I laugh now. I've been doing this for five years and it took me two years really just to find out, you know, kind of how it works in another few years to get the relationships at a level. And so this is probably the past year or so is I feel like I'm as effective as I've been, but I now start thinking about and comparing it to how we go about medicine. And there's so many things we could learn. Mm -hmm. I would love to go back and apply some of what I know now to healthcare and efficiencies. I mean, 
you know, how do we make efficient healthcare valuable? And how do we define what that is? You have to define it. You have to build in what's your KPIs you're trying to achieve. And once you identify what you're trying to do, then you have a goal and you can build programs to meet the KPIs. I mean, how many meetings have you been in your career where there's no goal? It's like, hey, we want to do this. And you just kind of go off down this road. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's never based. It's never historically. I've been out a little while, but historically, it's never been based on on value to the patient. Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. And I I mean, that's why Emily and I developed this podcast, because I, I told you when we chatted before our interview, it's. Uh, the only people that we interview are, are people that don't touch healthcare. You know, I mean, you have such mm-hmm. a unique perspective because you are coming from, you know, a background of uh, pediatric cardiology. But it's been amazing during this experience as to just how much, you know, whether you're an NFL player or a NASCAR mm-hmm. or a musician or whatever it may be, how we can extrapolate these ideas and apply them um, in a way that hopefully improves health delivery and health outcomes. So, we have taken up so much of your time, so I'm going to wrap us up and say thank you and ask you just a couple of questions. So we end all of our podcast interviews with the same set of questions uh, okay. for every person, and this is just a like first thing that comes to mind, not a long answer, just a, okay. a couple um, words. So our first question is, one of the things that we like to think about and, and learn about are leadership theories and quotes and books and, you know, how we might apply that. So what is your favorite leadership quote or maybe a leadership book that you have recently read? I've got one on my desk that I started. I like this guy, Patrick Lancioni. He does a bunch of leadership stuff. He wrote the book Death by Meetings, but this is called The Advantage. And I like his philosophy on leadership. It's what I think Joe talks about and what I like, and that is it's people-based it's got accountability and it has openness to it. So Lancioni is, is one of my favorite authors that I've read lately, but I still go back to Joe's quote. And I think it's, you know, I love it. He says, you, you know, you win with people. And I think that's true. And that had the nuance with that statement is powerful. He doesn't say you win with good people, bad people, smart people, dumb people, whatever. He just says you win with people and you can take that and look at, the people you have, what you're trying to do, and you can go, is this the right group of people to reach this goal? And if you honestly assess it, then you, you'll be successful. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that quote, I've heard you, you know, mention it a few times now, and I think it's just so incredibly powerful. Question number two in our right. rapid fire questions. Yeah, I got a little what? long on that one. I had a book. I, <laughs> no, it's funny, okay. I'm reading this that's book okay. now. <laughs> What is one thing on your wish list related to healthcare? So an example would be something you'd like discovered or changed in healthcare. I think we should get back to more patient-focused healthcare that's economically friendly. We have an administrative cost of healthcare now that's out of control. And there has to be a more efficient way for you guys and physicians, the, the people that touch the patient. Sometimes we we get encumbered by all the other stuff. It needs to be a simpler, more economic, more patient doctor, nurse focused healthcare system. That's a wonderful answer. I don't think we've had anybody touch on that before. I love that. Our last question. We believe in the power of lifelong learning. We are both very much lifelong learners. And 
We're curious about what you would like to learn. If you could learn anything new, what would it be? Well, I agree with you because I have a saying, and I say it all the time, every day is school day. You should learn something every day. And if you're not learning something in some aspect, I think you're, you've missed an opportunity. And I love to learn. I, I switch careers and learn a new business. But the thing that I still want to do, and I'm going to do it, is I want to learn how to weld. And it started when I was about six years old. My dad took me to a little shop, and I remember I was fascinated with the welders, and I still have that memory. I've been around mechanical stuff my whole life, and the guys downstairs, I keep going down there, and they're, they're going to teach me. But, but someday when I get the time, I'm going to learn how to weld. I love that. Well, it sounds like you're in the right place to in right organization to learn. You've got some pretty good experts, I would say, right down the hall. Thank you so much for joining us. We have loved this. And I, like I have said a couple of times, and I think Emily has as well, there are just so many different pieces of this interview we can take away and apply to healthcare delivery and outcomes. And we were just thrilled to have you and learn from you and learn a little bit about um, Joe Gibbs Racing and, and NASCAR. So thank you so much. Well, great guys. I appreciate the opportunity and you guys keep doing it. We need great nurses. Some, I mean, I was around some incredible nurses for a long time and I admire them so much. What you guys do is so important. And I appreciate what you guys do. Thank you so much. (laughs) Emily, I feel like Craig's interview doesn't really need much of a debrief. Who knew that a NASCAR race team and a healthcare team had so much in common? But I thought it was so serious. Honestly, if I could go back, I would ask Craig more tips on how to read the leaderboard or just the most popular tailgate snacks. This was a sophisticated explanation of an industry that I realized I didn't know much about. I truly learned so much from Craig. I agree, Audra. Craig did such a good job connecting the two industries. I'm going to be honest, Audra. When you suggested interviewing someone from NASCAR, I also had no idea how much I would learn. This just makes me think, and while Craig was talking, I was thinking about a school trip I went on with my oldest daughter last year. Now, on that trip, I learned from our amazing chartered bus driver that his favorite group to drive are NASCAR fans. He said he said that they're always a memorable crew. <laughs> but outside of that, you know, I've not spent tons of time in the NASCAR world. In addition to the technology and the many layers of complexity that go into building a racing team, one of the things that stuck out to me was that Craig really emphasized the importance of communication and teamwork. And those are two things that we certainly love to talk about. I have never heard the line, you win with people. And I just absolutely love it. And I wrote it down and At one point in the interview, Craig said, look at the people you have. Is this the right group of people to reach your goal? And he said that identifying talent is a skill in and of itself. And he talked about his boss, Joe Gibbs, and, you know, mentioned that Joe Gibbs is in two major sport hall of fames, NFL and NASCAR. And Joe's motto is that you win with people. You don't win with a car. You don't win with anything other than people. And he takes talented people and puts them together in a way that optimizes performance. 
And, you know, Emily, I don't know about you, but I just, I loved it and I can't agree with it more. Teams, as we talk about, fill in weaknesses. They provide different perspectives. They truly make work go from good to great. And I think we need to be reminded of this so often in healthcare. We don't win with medicine. We don't win with the latest and greatest technology. At the end of the day, we're going to win with our team. We win with people. Absolutely. Craig mentioned that staffing your healthcare team is a lot like staffing your race team. In NASCAR, you want great organization, a talented driver, a team that puts a lot of time and care in. All of that is needed for a racing team to reach its full potential. And he made a clear link to his time in pediatric cardiology, noting that while he did many heart caths in children, he was only as good as the weakest link on his team. Thinking about the people, the operations, the technology, and all of the different parts of the system is a huge part of building a successful team, whether you're racing cars or taking care of patients. Emily, I think Craig is our first guest that came from a healthcare background. So he really, funny as we're debriefing this, he really made the link for us between racing and healthcare, like you so eloquently said. And one of the things that I want to draw attention to is just how much he emphasized communication, particularly feedback, and how feedback is such a huge component of making a great team. And I was really intrigued by these debriefs that he described after race weekends that occur in the Joe Gibbs racing office. And Craig did a really great job of painting the picture, especially after your description of the bus driver's um, experiences with NASCAR (laughs) fans. But not that the fans are in the debrief. But anyway, he said, you know, there are a lot of quote unquote colorful participants. So, you know, as he was saying that, in my mind, I was thinking, it sounds like me, maybe after a really tough Carolina basketball loss, only maybe with even more passion and more spice, which is kind of hard to believe. But I just loved the whole idea of this because it sounds so authentic. And, you know, it's this wonderful opportunity to express how you're feeling in a psychologically safe space. And I think that's awesome to, one, give that opportunity to members of the team. But maybe more importantly, I think it just speaks volumes about the leadership of Joe Gibbs Racing. A leader and a team need to hear feedback. Audra, during the interview, I was thinking in my own clinical experience how in critical care, we always debrief any code situation. So the team's been through something that's been challenging, and it's critical that we stop and take the time to learn how everyone perceived the event in a safe space and how we can learn from the experience, then improve upon it. As a team member, it feels good to know that you're being listened to. I mean, how many times have we sat in a work meeting or even been dealing with our kids and you just wish you could say what you really think, of course, within reason. That's therapeutic. I, I agree, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate and say that, you know, it also can be really uncomfortable. For example, the other day I was asking my nine-year-old what she thought of a dress I was wearing. She said exactly what she thought, and it was not very nice. And she didn't make me feel cute. She actually made me think I should immediately take it off and donate it. And maybe I should, (laughs) but I love that about her. I think that it's just, 
there's so much value in giving authentic, thoughtful feedback. And for a leader, I think it gives a different lens to think about a problem or address whether or not you agree or disagree. For example, I thought I looked kind of cute for a working mom, but you know what? You know where you stand and you know how to incorporate that feedback to move forward and improve. Oh, I completely agree. And I get authentic feedback more often than I would like from my girls too. Just wait, it's going to get worse. It goes downhill the older they get. (laughs) I am terrified. Absolutely terrified. Communication and teamwork are clearly important in NASCAR and in healthcare. Feedback, having the confidence to speak up can make all the difference in quality and safety in healthcare. I also want to switch gears and say that I really liked learning about the diversity program with Reggie White. We are talking about similar initiatives in healthcare every day, and I think that this is an important takeaway for our work. Absolutely. Craig mentioned that these initiatives have to occur at the grassroots level. He emphasized the need for early support. In the racing industry, he talked about the need for diversified pit crews and for the importance of meeting individuals where they are, which I guess in racing could mean starting with go-karts. I don't know. But in healthcare, we can absolutely learn from this. We talk about and want to grow a diverse workforce, whether it be physicians or nurses or healthcare faculty. But I think that we really need to look at how to identify individuals early and provide the support they need to climb our professional ladders. The diversity program that Craig mentioned is a really great way to model such behavior in healthcare. Last point before we wrap up, because Craig really did the wrap up for us. (laughs) The link between collaborative partnerships with sponsors. Craig clarified that these sponsors are also a part of the racing team and add tremendous value to the program. The Mars M&M example of selling more candy really resonated with me. Racing was the platform, but the metrics were so much more than a race car. Looking for mutually beneficial partnerships in racing, in business, in healthcare is an important takeaway. And, you know, Emily, I think as healthcare providers, especially, you know, when you have frontline healthcare providers, we often miss these opportunities. We want to give the vaccines, we want to run the mobile vans, but we don't think about how to create a sustainable model. And by expanding our horizon, maybe with unlikely partnerships, we can also really expand our reach. I thought this interview was really interesting and it was so much fun for me to revisit an industry that I knew a little bit about as a child, but that I honestly haven't thought about as an opportunity to learn from as a professional before now. Well, as Craig said, every day is a school day and you should be learning every day. (laughs) Touche. I left this interview wanting to learn every day. And most importantly, I want to win with people every day. Fitting. Did you plan that? (laughs) Because this podcast isn't about healthcare. It is not. It's about learning from the experiences of others to make healthcare better. Thanks for learning with us. Rise with Emily and Audra was produced with Resonate Recordings. The original song, Rise, was composed and performed by Alex Crum. All right, this really.
probably shouldn't come as a surprise Knock us down a thousand times In the mornings we will rise This really shouldn't come as a surprise Knock us down a thousand times In the mornings we will rise Okay Shouldn't come as a surprise Cause every morning we will rise